I'm Andrew Schwartz, and you're listening to The Truth of the Matter, a podcast by CSIS where we break down the top policy issues of the day and talk with the people that can help us best understand what's really going on. To get to the truth of the matter about a really important new report that CSIS has out called Empty Bins in a Wartime Environment, the challenge to the U.S. defense industrial base. We have with us Dr. Seth Jones, who is the head of our international security program, senior vice president at CSIS, and the Harold Brown chair at CSIS. Seth, you're my most frequent guest on Truth of the Matter, and there's a good reason for that. Welcome back. Andrew, it is always an extraordinary pleasure to be in your company. (laughs) Listen, man, this is an important report. The Wall Street Journal had an exclusive on it this morning. They even did a news alert because it's a big deal. And empty bins, give us an overview of why you wrote it and, and what it says. Well, Andrew, since the subject of this is the truth of the matter, the truthful answer to the question about why... I wrote it and why we wrote it is because it was actually our president, John Hamry, that suggested that we take a close look at the state of the defense industrial base and how well it was prepared to fight a protracted war and how much it was on a wartime footing. And the idea really was was less about war fighting and more also about deterrence. Do we have a defense industrial base that was able to deter a major adversary, and if deterrence fails, to fight effectively the entire centerpiece of the U.S.'s national defense strategy is extended deterrence. And what we found in talking to senior folks in the Department of Defense on Capitol Hill, both Republicans and Democrats, in the defense industry, and then subject matter experts, was pretty emphatic that The U.S. defense industrial base is largely operating on what you would call a peacetime footing, certainly not a conventional wartime footing. And what that means is, for example, that the U.S. would run out of specific types of uh, precision-guided munitions like long-range anti-ship missiles in a war against China in the Taiwan Straits in less than a week. And that occurred Every, virtually every time we ran those 24 iterations of the war game that Mark Kansian put together. And that just highlights that how are we going to deter if the industrial base can't even get us through a week with some critical munitions in a war with China? And this is along the lines of already strained industrial base because we're providing some assistance to Ukraine in a war we're not even fighting. So those are a couple of the highlights, and we'll go into more detail, but that's really what what started us down this road. So if I understand this right, you know, we commonly think that the United States defense industrial base is, is huge and mighty and can produce an endless supply of weapons, and these are the best weapons in the world, they're the most technologically sophisticated, they're expensive, but we invest a lot in defense. What you're saying is, is that because we're supplying Ukraine to the extent we are, and because production is functioning at a peacetime rate, not a potential wartime rate, we're running out of stuff. Well, the the war in Ukraine and a war in the Taiwan Straits would be very different. 
the war in Ukraine is largely a ground war or to some degree an air ground war. And it's a conventional war. It's not an insurgent war it's not an like ins- in Iraq or Afghanistan. Yeah, the war in a war in the Taiwan Strait would be largely a sea or an air-sea battle. So they are different and require different types of munitions. I think the point as we looked at it was that the US industrial base does a lot of things. You've got a lot of weapon systems. But I think what the war in Ukraine actually showed is that a war involving major powers in a conventional fight as opposed to an insurgency where you're focused on trying to defeat the Taliban or, or ISIS, these are non-state actors, is it's industrial style. What does that mean? It means that you shoot lots of medium range, sometimes short range, long range munitions from artillery, from aircraft, from naval vessels, stuff breaks down. Regularly, you need lots of spare parts. Stuff gets blown up. Your tanks get destroyed. Your howitzers and artillery get destroyed. You need you need a constant supply. It became very clear early on as the U.S. was preparing for World War II, for example, after watching what was going on in Europe, that this kind of war was going to require a sustained industrial base focus. So the point here is that our industrial base is not geared towards supporting a protracted conventional war. And this is the environment we're now operating. We have a Russian invasion of Ukraine. That's a conventional war. And we have heightened tension in the Taiwan Strait. That would be a conventional war, maybe a nuclear war if, if there's escalation. So this is, in a sense, starting to push the defense industrial base to deal with the environment that now exists, not the one of the last 20 years or the last 50 years. It's the one that now exists against China and Russia. That's the bit. We're seeing huge gaps there. So how did this problem come about? Is it just because suddenly we're supplying Ukraine to the extent we are, and that's a protracted conflict, and we're giving them stuff that we would traditionally have just stockpiled and, and sitting in a warehouse and ready to go? Is that what happened here? Well, I mean, I think what certainly happened on the Ukraine side, first of all, that assistance has been critical to aiding the Ukrainian government against the Russians. It has those HIMARS, Stingers, uh, other weapons, 155 millimeter howitzers and, and ammunition, the Javelin, anti-tank missile systems. They've been really helpful in preventing the Russians from overthrowing the government in Kiev and then for pushing them back from some of the early lines of control. The problem is, as we started to see, the USAID started to deplete U.S. stocks of stingers. We didn't have a lot of stockpiles. Those munitions production lines had largely gone cold. It started to become a problem with stocks of 105 millimeter howitzers and ammunitions. Started to be a problem with Javelin anti-tank missiles. What I think took some people in the government by surprise is how much a conventional war like this is an industrial war. How much you've got to rely on repeated stocks of these things because you use them up so fast. The Russians are constantly barraging Ukraine with weapons. Ukrainians are shooting it back. You just, you run out of stockpiles in ways we, we didn't have these problems in Iraq and Afghanistan because, you know, we, we didn't shoot these kinds of, of missiles. So... What's different now in terms of the U.S. industrial base? You know, I would think the U.S. industrial base would be chomping at the bit to try to produce more of this stuff. What's the holdup? 
Well, there are a couple of problems that we found. One is contracts, for example. So one of the challenges, particularly with munitions, is that we don't see a lot of multi-year contracts. And so industry is often very hesitant to produce large stockpiles of weapons that may or may not ever be purchased by the Department of Defense. In addition... Wait, hold on. Explain that. So the calculation here is industry can only produce what they're hoping the federal government's going to buy so you can't overproduce because if you overproduce, then you, the company, are stuck with the stockpile that you can't sell. Is that right? Correct. So this is why for like big, some big ticket items, including with some ships or aircraft, they've got multi-year contracts. The, the government will build a submarine, will uh, tell the industry exactly how many submarines over a period of time that it's going to buy. With munitions, it's a very different story. It's generally done on a yearly basis for most munitions. And then what we often see is a number of services, like the Marine Corps, for example, at the end of the fiscal year may decide it doesn't want to buy the munitions that it said it was probably going to buy. It pushes them into some platforms that it has a much bigger interest. So in industry speak, it's what's called munitions become a bill payer. So this is why there's a lot of hesitancy from industry to build munition stockpiles. They're not going to do it unless the government pays for them. So one of the things that's been an issue is multi-year contracting for munitions. And it's something the department has increasingly talked about. The National Defense Authorization Act in 2023 has highlighted, let's do multi-year contracts. So we give industry the money and the timelines to build. One other thing is timelines. It takes a lot of time if you want to build those stockpiles or you want to build uh, factories to produce, say, munitions. Think for a moment the timelines for building a lot of the long-range munitions, like an LRASM, a long-range anti-ship missile, or a, or a JASM, or a JASM extended range. They're roughly a two-year production timeline to get just the first deliveries of the, of the missile. So you're, you can't fix this stuff quickly. You've, you're talking about years. If you want to increase the size of a factory, defense companies generally will have to buy a bigger chunk of real estate because that factory has to be within a certain distance from a local population. So then you've got to pay more insurance. For, I mean, this, this stuff takes enormous time. It doesn't happen quickly, which is there's an urgency to this issue we're seeing that I, I think based on the security environment we're in that we highlighted significantly like this this stuff if you're going to make these changes in 2025 and 2026 you got to do it now you you can't make them and expect them to be 2023 changes so even if you're the best industrial base in the world and undoubtedly the United States is and even if you're at the best at building these munitions and and all that what you're saying is is that if the planning equation doesn't work out right we could really be stuck. And right now, it appears that we're stuck unless we do something pretty quickly. Just to restate this issue, which is kind of daunting when you stop and think about it. If the Chinese, and we hope they don't, were to invade Taiwan and a war were to start tomorrow, we, according to our 24 iterations of a war game in the Taiwan Straits, we would run out of long-range anti-ship missiles in less than a week. Now, just to highlight, for the Chinese to get 
PLA Army forces onto Taiwan, they would generally have to come in on surface vessels. You could probably fly them in, but that's pretty dicey. They could get shot down. They can get they can get sunk if they're coming in by sea on a vessel. But I think that's the way the U.S. generally has brought most of its force, ground forces in by sea lift. And so this places a high importance on anti-ship missiles. So if a conflict extends, and this is where Ukraine is helpful, now we're almost in the first year of a war. If a conflict extends over seven days, you're, you've run out of some key munitions you need to strike targets. That's really the problem that we're seeing right now. And in addition to that, we're also seeing foreign military sales and restrictions on sharing technology that are adding years to this process. So, Seth, is this a situation that we could have avoided? Well, the problem, Andrew, is that it's hard to make these changes when there is a peacetime environment when war doesn't seem imminent. And the war in Ukraine really changed that because it showed that conventional war is not a thing of the past. It's not a hypothetical worry. The Russians invaded a country, Ukraine. And then as we've seen with some U.S. government estimates, even the U.S. president, Joe Biden, talking about that he's willing to fight for Taiwan, the timelines for a possible war in Taiwan have decreased. And so I think all those things, Andrew, suggests that it probably is hard to do this in a benign environment because you're now you're starting to make some big changes. But the war in Ukraine and then tensions in the Taiwan Straits really provide an opportunity now to make, like, if we can't do it now, then it's on us. So what are some of the solutions that you would propose to addressing these so-called empty bins? Well, there are a few. I'll only highlight a couple of them. One of them is, and Congress can play a pretty helpful role here, I think continuing to encourage, push the Department of Defense to model the expenditure of critical munitions as part of land, naval, and air forces in a major conflict like the Taiwan Strait. So how many are they going to need in an extended, protracted war in the Taiwan Straits. Then what you can do with that is say, okay, we've developed an operational plan that assumes a protracted war. We have modeled how many munitions we're gonna need to win in a conflict like this, and then to be able to tell defense industry, okay, this is what we're gonna need to produce, this is what we're gonna need you to do, and this is how we're gonna evolve the contracting process so that you can get these to us in a timely fashion. So that's that's one, but it's gonna it's gonna require really pushing modeling at the Department of Defense. That'll be a classified discussion. I think any report that Congress asks the department to provide it will probably be a classified report. But some of the hearings that you can hold on this issue and the and the challenge of it, I think probably would be helpful to make some of that unclassified to show the magnitude of the challenge. There are also some things that we look at, a munitions reserve, whether it makes sense as part of the Defense Production Act to stockpile strategic munitions so the government has to pay for it, not industry, whether it makes sense to streamline the foreign military sales and ITAR processes, particularly for key allies 
and partners. Andrew, it struck me talking to senior Australian officials recently. They are probably our closest ally in Asia. They're part of the Five Eyes intelligence sharing network with the British, the Canadians, and New Zealand. Right, which makes them different than Japan and South Korea. Makes them very different. The level of trust and intelligence sharing is like really no other uh, outside of that Five Eyes community. Yet several senior officials complained repeatedly that the timelines to get key weapon systems from the U.S., it takes forever because of the foreign military sales. And the same thing, one specific defense company gave us an example, and we verified it with the Department of Defense selling a specific weapon system to Taiwan. If it had been a straight-up commercial buy, it would have taken two years to produce that weapon system and then get it to Taiwan. So 2023, delivery day for 2025. Instead of a direct commercial buy, the U.S. government decided to do, uh, do this through foreign military sales. That whole bureaucracy added two more years to the process. So delivery dates now are 2027. That is the date when many people believe tensions could significantly increase. So that gives you a sense of, of the challenges. So streamlining those processes would be, would be critical. And then one last thing is looking at, at ways to co-produce with allies and partners. And we've seen a little bit of that start to happen. For example, with HIMARS, we've been really helpful in, in Ukraine. The U.S. is now co-producing the HIMARS uh, with Poland. We're also doing that with the Precision Strike Munition, a PRISM, with Australia. So there are some co-production elements to build those missiles in or, or other weapon systems in foreign countries that make a lot of sense. So these are things that we argue could be very helpful. You mentioned that U.S. allies like Australia are reliant on the U.S. industrial base. How important is that we continue to supply them when we can't even supply ourselves right now? Well, I mean, I think it is important to certainly encourage, as we've seen the Japanese do recently, encourage a number of our allies and partners to spend more time and money and effort building up their own defense industrial bases. Right. So they need to ramp up their own stuff. They need to do, you know, what we're not necessarily talking about is, a, is, a, is an increase in the defense budgets. We're just talking about focusing on weapon systems and equipment that is important for deterring, and then if deterrence fails, war fighting, of very specific scenarios. Ones, for example, with uh, in the Taiwan Straits or, or with the Russians in Eastern Europe. So it's not about necessarily expanding, increasing the defense budget. It's really towards focusing on very specific deterrence and war fighting for very specific scenarios. Seth, now that we've brought this to light with your report and you know it's circulating in, in the media now, it's circulating on Capitol Hill within the administration, certainly within the Defense Department and clearly within the defense industrial base. What do you think the next steps are? Will there be congressional hearings? Will there be public forum discussion about this? What's next for empty bins? Well, we're already hearing on the congressional side a lot of interest in taking a look at the state of the U.S. defense industrial base, particularly regarding the Chinese, holding hearings. And then the National Defense Authorization Act was helpful in pushing this issue forward, but figuring out sustained solutions to fixing some of these problems, not just on a yearly basis. And I think holding the Department of Defense's feet to the fire on making changes within the bureaucracy the way that 
the, you know, it's a different scenario from the pre-World War II scenario, but at least getting on a footing that we can effectively deter. Because again, how do you deter China if you run out of munitions, key munitions, in less than a week of a war? In the t- how do you deter them? They know this. They know we're running out. We know or this. Or could run out, yeah. And so how do you deter them? That becomes very hard. So it's not just about war fighting, it's about deterrence. And so I, I think having this conversation public now, there are a range of ways that Congress can start pushing to start to fix this. Just so I understand this clearly, the Chinese know that we're overextended in this space. They can sit back and have their industrial base produce and collect, and they're not shipping their stuff to Russia for use at this point. So they're immune from running out. We're not. They know this. They know it's an advantage that they may have. We know that they know that. So what is the level of urgency here in remedying this problem? It's significant. I mean, I would say that the the Chinese would almost certainly have their own industrial-based challenges. And that actually is something that we want to look at a little bit more closely. We focus mostly on the U.S. industrial-based side. Now, there have been some recent U.S. government estimates, public estimates, that the China is heavily investing in munitions and acquiring high-end weapon systems and equipment five to six times faster than the U.S. And that is a bit of a worry. I think what we have to do is assess to what degree and how much that would impact China's ability to fight an extended war. I mean, one of the things that's that's interesting here is a number of the conflicts that one can envision take place in China's backyard. That has some advantages because it means that the Chinese can bring a lot more more quickly. It has some disadvantages to fighting in your own backyard because you might get hit. Also, if you're launching missiles from bases on the mainland, you might also get hit in response the way we were launching if a war was happening just off the west coast of the United States. So there are some dangers along these lines. But I think the issue is there's a huge urgency to this if we're serious about deterring China. And then we also, Andrew, have to think about prepositioning stocks on Taiwan because as people are very well aware of with a war in Ukraine, we can endlessly provide weapon systems to the Ukrainians because the Russians haven't closed the border off. They don't have the the numbers of soldiers to close Ukraine's borders off with Poland, for example. They never did that in the first place. A war happens in Taiwan and the uh, Chinese are going to blockade the island. You can't get anything in or out of that island once war starts. So it's a very different situation, which means we need to operate with a sense of urgency. Well, Seth, thanks very much for this important report. I know it's going to be something we're going to be talking about again and again on this podcast because it really is a critical piece of our national security. Thanks so much. Really appreciate it, Andrew. Thank you so much. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 